Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Play to pod. Good morning, Play to Podders. Um, this is a very special episode of Play to Pod this week. It's been a few months since we had our last episode of Series 2. Um, this is an episode that we've been waiting a long time for, and it's an interview with Professor Sally Rogers. Um, Professor Sally Rogers is the co-creator of the Early Start Denver model, which a lot of you would have heard of. Um, this uh, research was first published in 2010, looking at young children um, with autism and um, using a naturalistic developmental play based intervention um, that really did have some great results and actually it was way back in 2010 that I first started to look into the early start Denver model and I went over to uh, the Mind Institute in Sacramento to do some of the first training in ESDM with Sally and um, we've been friends since and it's been great to keep in touch with her and keep her informed of how we've been getting on with Blue Sky and Play to Talk over the years Um, and it's been an amazing experience to have her on our podcast this week so she's a fountain of knowledge and she is an absolute expert in her field um, and we're very very lucky to have had her involved in play to pod um, so I hope you enjoy this episode and um, let's hear it from Sally. In this episode of play to pod we're going to be speaking to Professor Sally Rogers and she's the Distinguished Professor Emeritus of Psychiatry and Behavioural Science at the University of California in Davis and she's the co-creator of the Early Start Denver model with Jerry Dawson. Welcome, Sally. It's lovely to see you again after such a long time and lovely to hear you. Thank you so much, Ruth. It's great to be with you again. It has been a long time. I know. It's 11 years, actually. I was thinking that, 11 years. Um, so what do you want to tell the listeners a little bit about your background and how you started in autism and early intervention in particular? Sure. Um, let's see. Well, I think my background in developmental psychology in terms of training is absolutely critical to everything that I do. I'm deeply developmental. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I, I was always interested in disabilities, developmental disabilities. That I lived in a small town and there were children in my life on a daily basis with developmental disabilities. I grew up with children with developmental disabilities. I knew something about the treatment of some of them and the lack of treatment for most of them. I um, was very interested in autism and did a project in in um, college, my sophomore year in college on autism. And I had the opportunity to work in a horrible institution for people with intellectual disability, but that's where all the children were at the time. Mm-hmm. And that's where autism was too. And so I had the chance to work uh, in that place with a little boy with autism. And it was a wonderful experience for me. It was just fun. I didn't know anything then. I wasn't a developmental psychologist. I was just me with experience with kids with developmental disabilities. And mm-hmm. I mean, I always liked to play with babies. I was the kid in the block who at age seven would go to a door and knock and say, can I play with your baby, please? And of course, <laughs> The mothers loved it because I could occupy a baby forever. So I, I just naturally am one of those people that enjoy babies. And that works very well when you're working with young children with ASD or any other kind of disability or without disability, as you know. So mm-hmm. I did have this kind of natural inclination. And that's how I got interested. I got interested because of an article I read as a teenager on autism in a magazine about Lovas's work. 
So that was um, the kickoff for me. And I, I really enjoyed working with that boy. I mean, he started to talk, we played, I mean, it was, he could draw. It was so amazing. This child who'd been in this horrible place with absolutely no services his whole life. And how quickly he learned that really stood out to me. Mm -hmm. So that was the beginning of my interest in autism and my sense of just using things that work with little children, um, being helpful. And then in graduate school, I was still interested in autism, and now I was in a program in developmental disabilities. So I did a, my master's in autism, on autism, and in order to do that, I basically had to read every, everything there was, and there wasn't that much literature in mm -hmm. autism. Um, you could read it. You could read the whole literature in a semester in grad school, and I did. And so I read all the classic texts. You know, this is a long time ago, but there was this book called Your Child is Asleep by a French psycho psychiatrist named Austin Delorier. And he had a neurological model. Now, this is way before people were talking about neurobiology of autism. I mean, Rimland's book had just come out. But he was talking about a model that involved the attentional system, the reticular activating system. And his idea was that the social signal wasn't getting through. And that you had to uh, turn up the volume of the signal to kind of get through the unaroused, this low arousal in the brain. But anyway, I, I was working with another little boy in another institution, and he was very hard to get through. And I talked to my advisor about all the things I was working on. It didn't work. And I had these ideas. And he said, what do you have to lose? Try whatever you can think of. And so that's where the sensory social routines out of ESDM came from. Mm -hmm. It was from uh, Delorier's model and going into the, with this little boy who was so interested in objects and totally not interested in people and taking him into, I mean, a seclusion room because that was the only place there was where there was nothing, mm -hmm. just an empty room with a bed and inventing all these games that you play with toddlers that are very lively with a lot of music and movement and I, it was like you turned on a switch. You know the feeling of this. Mm -hmm. you yeah. A switch, his eyes lit up, the smile came on, and he wanted more and more and more and more. And that was that. And I thought, all right, there's something very important about this, something very important about this emotional, finding a way to find the smile. That's the phrase we use in the SDM, find the smile, and then all that, nonverbal communication to keep things going. And then it becomes a dyad. And that was really the key to him. And that stood out greatly to me. So anyway, those are where some of the early ideas came from. And here we are, huh? Um, and what were your biggest motivations for developing the early thought Denver model? Um, because I guess previously the kind of play-based ABA wasn't really something that was in existence. Play yeah, play-based ABA wasn't in existence then. PRT was just, hadn't been named. And I think they were, I, I, Laura Schreiber told me once the story about how PRT developed with her and Bob Cagle when they were still, I believe, in grad school. And how a speech therapist, they looked at a speech therapist's work and the speech therapist was using all these kinds of naturalistic techniques and they watched her work. They had a common patient and they watched her child and they watched her work and they thought, hmm, there's something to this. That's where PRT started. So for me, the ESDM started out of the Denver model, which is a preschool that I started way back in the 
early 80s because I got grant funding to do that. And I'd gone to a new place. I needed to do something. I had I had already figured out how to write a grant to work with kids uh, with developmental disabilities. So I knew the process. So I went back to the same group and thought I needed to do something. I'd like to do something with autism. So I um, there were no developmental approaches to autism in the literature at the time, uh, other than in the psychoanalytic literature. And I knew how to write that, and I'd been in a developmental program for infants and toddlers with Michigan. I knew how I knew the way the grants went. I knew the language. I'd developed a curriculum tool already and a process for writing objectives. I already had that 12-week cycle that we use already well-established, and I had some publications on. So I submitted this grant using a developmental model and uh, mapping that onto the infant work we'd done in Michigan and the absence of it in autism, and it got funded. Boom. So there I was in Denver uh, needing to create now this preschool that only existed in my brain. And that's, that's really the beginning of ESDM was in that little preschool where we were starting, you know, absolutely from the beginning. We had no curriculum. Nobody was doing this. I assembled a great group of developmentalists, interdisciplinary, right, an early childhood special mm-hmm. educator, an OT, a speech pathologist, um, and we just put our heads together and I was working for models I already known. And we used that first three years to just figure out how to do this in a group. That was mm-hmm. a group program, which then got recapitulated in the, with the Australians in the Australian group program. So, so that was the start of all of it. And we had time to work on it, to develop more materials, to do the research on it. We got some extensions for that. And so that was up and running for preschoolers as a group program. ESDM, uh, Jerry invited me into a grant that she had, which do one-on-one work with young younger children. And she had originally started just with an ABA approach. And she invited mm-hmm. me in because she knew my work. We knew each other. She's also a developmentalist. And so we really, that was a marvelous opportunity for us to work together and also with PRT folks who were there then, but uh, Jamie and Chris, who'd come from Laura Schreibman's lab. And so they were already there with PRT and PRT is a nice midpoint between Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of ABA, moving ABA into developmental, but they didn't have the term developmental in it yet. They didn't Mm -hmm. have those ideas. So we, we really, the, the group of us, the two uh, PRT therapists and Jerry and I created this amalgamation which worked very, very well. Just It was helpful for the Denver model, adding behavior analysts to the team. I'd not worked with behavior analysts before. They just hadn't been there at the time. So it really helped us refine our teaching and, and develop better fidelity measures and do the, work, you know, the kinds of things that those behavior analysts really brought to it. And, and then we could continue with the good developmental work that was there. And Jerry's, we, I had been working with kids as young as 24 months. Um, Jerry's project was about very young children. So we moved into 18 to 24 months, dropped the curriculum a little bit. Mm-hmm. And that became then the early start Denver model. It needed a name. So, Wow. Um, and how did the ESDM vary from the other interventions that had previously been established for very young children with autism? How had it, how was it different? Yeah, how was it different? How is it yeah. different still? I'm not thinking there were any interventions at the time published 
for 18 to 24 month olds with autism. We're talking about 2005, 2006. Mm-hmm. Um, I honestly don't know that there had been a paper about children that young in a named intervention. Mm-hmm. People weren't, you know, we didn't have the tools. We weren't really diagnosing very often at that age. That was an extremely young sample at the time when we published that 2010 paper. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly other people's models were, were around um, there. Amy Weatherby and Barry Prezant's work, it mapped very closely on what we were doing and it was applicable, but I don't know that there were studies out. We'd have the literature, Ruth. <laughs> we could do a bit of a Google later. Um, I think it was probably that children of that age, if, if they were being recognised, were most likely being put into kind of more of a general discrete trial type programme. Would that be right um, in the US? At two, at 18 to 24 month olds, I don't think so yet. I Because of the diagnostic problem, you know, there mm-hmm. were very few being diagnosed. And as you know, in... Um, uh, in strict ABA programs, that, that first paper about working with toddlers in a high chair um, in the ABA literature, that wasn't published yet. So I don't think there'd been anything about toddlers that young. Um, certainly the, you know, Lovas's trainees and the latest Lovas papers had children at two and a half and up, I think, 30 mm-hmm. and up. Yeah. The uh, replications, the eighty-seven paper, and the children who came after that, but it was it was um, one of the earliest papers, I believe, that we're talking about children twenty-four months and younger. Yeah, so it was really groundbreaking at the time, and things have moved on so significantly from there that now that's kind of a, a typical age for children in the U.S. anyway to start intervention. Yeah. And younger, we see children much younger whose parents have, have read up and they know what red flags might look like. And there's just so much you can do at such an early age now. Um, so ESDM was the groundbreaker of that that kind of focus on the younger younger children, wasn't it? I think it, I think it was one of the big early contributors to this idea mm-hmm. of starting so young. You know, when you said a minute ago that four-year-olds with autism who'd had no intervention and all of the um, additional layer of difficulties they develop in those years. I thought to myself, I haven't seen a four-year-old who didn't receive intervention after being do- diagnosed as a two or two and a half year old. I haven't seen that here. Mm-hmm. It's been so long since I've seen a child, I mean, decades since I've seen a child whose autism was known early on with no intervention till four. Yeah, it's crazy over here because we see that all the time. And it's it's incredibly sad because, you know, there's like you say, there's a good probably two and a half years worth of, of work that could have been done to support a child to learn the skills they need. And there's all that additional, you know, the frustration increases, the self-interest behaviour is sometimes there at four and five. Um, so, yeah, the UK needs to really get its act together <laughs> um, very quickly because um, it's it's really it's unfortunately letting a lot of children and families down and that's been the case since I saw you 11 years ago which is why I came to yeah. the Minds Institute to do my training and to to get Blue Sky off the ground yeah. so yeah not a lot has changed really not a lot yeah I think that one thing that has changed for all the parents that are listening from your end are the online tools now for mm-hmm. parents I mean parent implemented intervention is very powerful intervention Amy Weatherby published a very important paper in 2014, I believe, showing that parent-implemented intervention could have the same level of outcomes Mm -hmm. as what we were doing 
She had the same amount of developmental gain. I'm not talking about symptom relief. I'm talking about both symptom change and major developmental changes mm-hmm. um, from a completely parent-implemented intervention. Yeah. And so, and I totally believe that. I don't think therapists do anything that parents can't do and don't do mm-hmm. and do very successfully. And parents have great advantages in terms of being there all the time in natural environments. Yeah. Um, they have a much richer opportunity to teach their children than therapists going in or out or being at a clinic ever do. Mm-hmm. And now there are more and more online tools for parents to learn the tool, the techniques that we all use. Curriculum tools are out there. There's so many tools parents can put their hands on to implement and also to get some help, you know, but be able to do it at home. And I, I want parents to feel uh, brave and able to do that because you have it, parents. You have the relationship already and the environments you need. Absolutely. And that's exactly what we're doing here because we're not really getting any grants or any government support. Um, and we are focused mainly on primarily on parent training um, mm-hmm. because people are not accessing us for intensive intervention as well, maybe just right. once or twice a week. And a lot is online now as well with people from a distance. And that mm-hmm. is, you know, the children that we're working with who are doing online only versus the kids that we sometimes see. There's no difference in their developmental gains if the parents are trained and on board. Um, so it's really incredible because we've got such a kind of it's a difficult situation here because we're not able to provide free services to people um, and parents quite often, you know, for work situations and all sorts of other things, they can only access us maybe once or twice a week mm-hmm. and their children make exactly the same amount of progress as children that we see at the clinic more regularly. So uh, there's evidence in the research and there's also evidence with our own work. Um, and we spent, I spent a lot of lockdown putting a lot of parent training online as well. So we've got some online tools that we're using um, and we've directed people to the ESDM online tool thing now. Yes, we do. We're, we're um, actually all the work I'm doing with families and children are is online and it's mm-hmm. international. Yeah. Because um, those families need have less help than uh, our, our American families. Mm-hmm. So and I love working online. I, I prefer that to working in the clinic. I I find it a much richer experience to be in a family's home and be able to see what they have and yeah. be able to help them from the start rather than put it, expecting them to have to generalize from a clinic session. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's much more uh, effective and it's a different real quality of relationship too. I think families are more at ease in their yeah. own homes. And um, so we're, we're blessed to have this technology. When it works, yeah. <laughs> We had an online call today with a parent and one of my therapists was doing it and it took four minutes for them both to realise they couldn't hear each other. So I think <laughs> they'd been talking to each other and she was doing very, very good work with her child, but she couldn't hear us and we couldn't hear them, but it looked great. <laughs> so it was one of the Zoom fails, I think. Um, so in terms of your ongoing research into ESDM and, and kind of what you've done over the last 11 years and, and prior, what have been your strongest findings? I think you've spoken there about, you know, children who have parent input making exactly, you know, equivalent progress to children that have clinic input. Um, what, what have been your strongest findings? You know, the three key papers, if you want to focus on ESDM work, the three key papers are the very first RCT, which was a small RCT. It wasn't so small. That was a lot of kids, 48 kids. Um, but it was the first and it demonstrated significant gains uh, in the ESDM group compared to the community group who are also getting a fair amount of treatment. Mm-hmm. So that um, I was worried every, probably every night of my life through the whole five years of that study, whether or not it would actually 
end up being um, a solid finding because I felt like all the weight was on my shoulders and we'd mm-hmm. never had it tested in RCT. So it was very, whew, mm-hmm. <laughs> I could relax a little when we first ran the, the data. That was nice. So that was a key study and let us know we're on the right track. But, you know, um, one finding is only one finding, and it's not a fact. A finding is not a fact. It's not mm-hmm. a fact until you can replicate the finding and other people can do it. And you can demonstrate that this isn't based on a very specific uh, chemistry of a certain lab and a certain set of people and a certain set of children at a certain t- point in time. Mm-hmm. So I've been very gratified by all the work that's gone on among so many of our international colleagues, um, as well as American colleagues mostly international colleagues where we have replications in RCTs from China and Australia and different kinds of delivery. Italy's published several findings now, and uh, it's very, you know, it's, it's nice to see that this really works and it works in different cultures and it works in different delivery styles that the basic concepts mm-hmm. are useful and that um, they, they do meet autism kind of where it needs to be. Certainly not the only effective treatment, but it's one of the few, I think, that has that level of science behind it. Mm-hmm. So the replication was critical. And I know some people said, well, you know, you only replicated the language finding, so you didn't really replicate the 2010 paper. I've always most been focused on language. Mm-hmm. To me, the most important thing we can do for children with autism is to give them language. Mm-hmm. Because with language, you have so much access to everybody else and they have access to you in a way everybody has access to you because it's a common language and because the level of thoughts that you can express uh, is different than what you can do with picture. We don't have a picture system. I haven't seen data on a picture system for children with autism that allows them the range and depth of expression Mm -hmm. speech does the representational use of language. Um, So for me, I was, that was what I needed to see that language was still the main outcome. And I feel, um, I think when you have language, you're also, you're treating the core deficits of autism, which is social communication. Mm -hmm. If you have expressive, useful language, you know, does it matter so much what your eye contact is like anymore? You know, I think, the core symptoms kind of fall away once you are a child who can speak and can produce language spontaneously and can carry out conversations and play with other people. That by itself is the core of autism to me. Mm-hmm. So, so anyway, that was critical. And then the paper that we published recently, the comparison with uh, the uh, very classic, uh, classic but contemporized uh, version of Lovasa's original um discrete trial teaching. That was a fascinating, in terms of interesting findings, you asked me about what what surprised me the most. I was not surprised that both groups did well. I expected that. I did not hypothesize that there would be an ESDM advantage there. Where I thought the advantage would be, if you actually read the grant, was that I thought that the children with the most significant impairment, intellectual as well as autism, would do better in uh, in DTT. Mm-hmm. I thought that that there. I thought I think all of us thought that their needs would be better met by the higher structure and more repetition in DTT. 
And I was amazed that we did not find that. Absolutely amazed. I think that to me, that was the most important message that don't assume that children who have one kind of intellectual profile will do better always with naturalistic. Don't assume that children who have a different kind of a profile and are slower to learn automatically need type of approach that DTT, traditional DTT takes. Um, And I think the idea that these, the level of structure and the kind of relationship that you have are tools. We there are all these tools and all the tools of DTT are tools, working in a chair, a mass trial learning, using lots of picture and pictorial act activities, using a lot of repetition. Those are tools. And some children need those tools, benefit very much from those tools. Other children benefit from a more play-based approach, naturalistic approach. They uh, respond better to that. They learn rapidly in that kind of approach and have more difficulty inside structured, highly structured adult-directed approach. We need, and isn't it nice to know that we have all these different uh, techniques that allow us to individualize to the child? Mm-hmm. That's the important part. Yes, isn't that's it? the important part is that um, children with autism are as different from each other as any of the rest of us are different from each other. In some ways, they're more different from each other because they're, the range of both their skills and their difficulties are broader than mm-hmm. we see in a, in a group of children who do not have difficulties difficulties learning. So knowing that all the tools that we have that have been tested, there are places for them and that we need to be open-minded inside inside the work that we do. Whatever model we choose, some models have all of these different techniques built into them. Like ESDM has a, a decision tree, which allows you to start to take that apart and put in different tools inside the decision tree for children who may need different kinds of help. With other interventions, they don't necessarily have a decision tree laid out. And that's when you think about, we're having difficulty with this. What are other tools in the literature, evidence-based tools that might help? Mm-hmm. I think one way or another, we none of us can be just in one system with yeah. one set of tools and say, this is it for everybody. We all need as many tools as we can get. And that's the reason why we continue to need research and new techniques and new approaches, new ideas, new training. We need to grow forever in our mastery of these tools. Absolutely, because children deserve the best, don't they? So reinventing the wheel every time isn't important, but trying to improve on what we already know each time is the the, kind of the best focus, isn't it? Um, So there's much debate on hours per week, and there is over here as well with a lot of private providers um, of intervention for children under five. So what are your thoughts on this? And what have you found in your research? What does the science say? Yes, well, that was the other big surprise, right? Um, I actually did not expect in, uh, the most recent paper that we studied also compared children receiving 15 hours a week of one-on-one intervention to children receiving 25 hours a week of one-on-one intervention. And we looked at that both with children getting ESDM and children getting DTT. And there was no significant difference in the progress those groups of children made based on the hours per week. Mm-hmm. And I also expected that uh, because if you actually, I expected it because of previous findings. Mm-hmm. And, and really because we found in the first ESDM paper that we could create the same level of IQ gain and language gain in our 15 to 20 hours a week of ESDM 
that Lovas had reported in the very best outcomes of the controlled Lovas papers. Mm-hmm. So that's why I assumed that it was going to work or that we weren't going to find a difference. And we didn't. And we didn't even find a difference based on learning patterns of children. I did expect that children with the most severe learning difficulties and autism symptoms would, would benefit more from more hours. And they did not. Mm-hmm. You know, the differences between them in the two groups were not distinguishable, even based on level of disability. So that's interesting as well. And it also, it makes me think a lot about, I feel that's freeing. I think, I think it's exhausting for children to receive that much intervention. It's exhausting Mm -hmm. for families, families, it's exhausting for therapists to deliver that many hours to specific children of the same child. And I think... You know, all of life is important for young children with autism. Family life is important. Peer play is important. Going to the grocery store is important. Doing what the family does, helping at home, being at the table instead of getting your dinner during your therapy session. And I think when you're trying, when you're so focused on hours, it squeezes out a lot of kind of the natural growing up experience of toddlers and young children. And those are important learning experiences. You know, the children in our particular study, we're getting, we've trained, all parents got parent coaching. I mm-hmm. don't say trained, I say coached. So all the parents knew how to incorporate uh, teaching and learning into their daily activities at home. And that may be why the therapy hours didn't matter. But it also fits a developmental point of view um, to value the learning that goes on at home. We know that home is, daycare tries to make the kinds of gains that home does. All the studies of daycare compare daycare to children who were raised at home by parents. So in all of those models, the assumption is that uh, for a young child, being home in the family and with the family experiences that go on is the right, is the best learning environment for a young child. I assume we evolved into that. And so I why wouldn't that be true for a child with autism as well? There are important mm-hmm. things. So I feel, I feel like that freed things up. I hope that parents can take a deep breath and value the weekend time that they have, the evening time that they have, the bath time that they have, and certainly use um, using treatment strategies to help them with difficult times in those periods. But there's a ton of learning to be gained from the fun activities of bath time. Mm-hmm. That's part of what I uh, love about the naturalistic strategies is these are just learning strategies. They mostly are the learning strategies that every toddler, they're taken from the infant toddler literature. This is how human children learn. Mm-hmm. And, um, we've been able to show that this is also how young children with autism learn. And so the same techniques that families are using with their other children, the same pa- parenting strategies you may turn up the volume a little bit for your child with autism. You may have to take care of the distractors <laughs> in a way that you didn't for your other children. But the basic parenting strategies of parents are skillful. And we have study after study that demonstrates that parents mm-hmm. uh, interact with their young children with autism quite similarly to parents with any other any other child, that they have those same strategies and that their children respond to them. Mm-hmm. And everything and, can be an opportunity as well, can't it? That's the thing that everything can be an opportunity for learning. 
Every interaction is an opportunity for learning. And what parents with children with autism naturally do is to add a little bit more scaffolding, mm-hmm. draw their child's attention a little bit more. They make sure their child is engaged and that's uh, supporting them because of their difficulties with social attention. So I'm very confident in parents' abilities. For me, it's it's important that we start with parent coaching rather than intensive intervention so mm-hmm. that parents from the beginning realize how how skillful they are and don't ever feel like the therapist can do it. And the parents don't know how they do know how you've been doing it all along parents. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. And that was something I found in my thesis and my doctoral thesis looked at parent experience of diagnosis in Massachusetts and then in central Scotland. And one of the surprising findings I had from the parent group in Massachusetts was they actually found the hours per week that they were given by their providers quite overwhelming and they found that sometimes it took away from their interaction time with their child that was a really surprising finding because my hypothesis would have been that you know everyone in the states is really happy with the amount of services they get and because scotland really get nothing as per the rest of the uk um but that was quite a surprising finding that actually parents found it quite overwhelming that someone was coming into their house quite often and having their child for you know maybe up to 30 hours a week sometimes 40 depending on the provider and they just felt they hadn't got any time with their child so yeah i think that um the research the recent research that you've done and other people have looked at kind of comparatives between hours per week it's really freeing like you say for for families who are you know being given quite a lot of hours they know that actually they can opt out of that if they want to because the science says that's okay yeah we probably should talk a little bit about parent guilt around this topic of hours Mm -hmm. because i I've met so many families who feel so apologetic that they can't get or can't give their child 35 or 40 hours a week, and they feel like they're doing their child a disservice. And I, um, I really hope parents can start to revalue uh, the time that they spend with their children and the time their children are at home and are with them and their siblings and their grandparents and whatever activities they do that this is important learning time. Your child is not losing out because they're home with you playing in the bathtub and having a good time with their siblings. Um, and that the time at home is very important learning time. And I feel like it can certainly do as much. Our data show mm-hmm. that it does not uh, decrease child rate of learning because they're not in therapy all day or most of their waking hours. Mm-hmm. They're learning most of their waking hours when they're engaged and engaged is engaged with anybody. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Um, so as you know, the UK is not particularly forward thinking in terms of early intervention for autism. Um, what would be your top tips for parents of young children who are showing those kind of early red flags for autism um, in this situation? Find somebody um, that becomes a support for you. It's really, really frightening for parents when they start to see red flags. And a lot of uh, things can evolve out of that worry. A lot of testing of response to name, for instance, a lot of kind of forced play that parents are are trying to do. Those, Those by themselves, like be yourself, be yourself. The interventions that you read about here and there online, and that's hard to do when you're worried. So finding someone else who can say, yeah, that's look at that nice smile. I think that's very important to have somebody else who's there with you, admiring you and your parenting. And that's one thing I would say. If you can find a professional who has training in 
infant education or infant mental health or communication development, those are all play-based folks, um, you may get some support from them just so you feel like you're not alone. I think a lot of the work I do with infants and, and their parents when they're worried about the red flags, it's, it's, I'm supporting the parents in doing what they already do, but it helps them feel better to have somebody who's saying, yeah, I think that is the right thing to do. And look how she responds and look how he responds and look how he's growing and monitor, helping them monitor development to see that the baby's doing well and developing gesture, developing smile, developing play. It helps to have a support when you're that worried. A second thing I would say to families is um, many of the red flags that are published are published about differences that we see at around 10 to 12 months. We do not have markers at six months for the onset of autism. And using the markers that are there at 10 to 12 months and applying them to a three to six month old is inaccurate because it is typical for young babies to have repetitive behaviors. There's a whole literature on the necessity of repetitive behaviors as babies start to develop intentional control over their limbs. They do it by using repetitive behavior. That's all they can do. They rock on hands and knees before they can move out to start to crawl. Mm -hmm. It's preparatory and normal for the developmental system. Many young babies rock their heads when they put themselves to sleep. It's a way of calming themselves. So um, please don't take the red flags that are written for 10 to 12-month-olds and use them as a way of assessing your six-month-old. I'm afraid you'll worry needlessly. I'm getting a lot of emails about families of two to three-month-olds, and particularly babies who've had some stressors in the first few months. They were a little earlier. They had some difficulties or they were hospitalized for an infection or something. And please recognize that in those first three months of life, you know, even though, yes, there is a literature about newborn gaze to face, I've done those studies, it takes a lot to get a newborn to make eye contact and follow. Those mm -hmm. are very brief periods of time. It requires a very specific state in the newborn and a very specific set of techniques. And there's a huge difference in newborn's ability to attend to other people for very long in the first two or three months. That's the time when they're getting their body settled down. And don't please realize there's a huge range of differences and it doesn't have meaning if you're one month old doesn't make much eye contact. It's normal for young babies to focus on lights and to focus on fans and to look at their hands. Um, by three to four months, you're going to see a different, you're going to see the development of social interest in your baby. So those are points I would say for parents who are worried about red flags in their under 10 month olds. Mm -hmm. And what I, about, what about advice for parents who have older toddlers who are maybe not getting the support from the, the professionals that they should be in terms of kind of our health services and things. And they're being told, really, there's nothing you can do with a two-year-old and they just need to wait and see. Yes. Well, um, I would say, you know, you know what's going on with your baby. Trust yourself 
and start to pick up some of the manuals that are written for parents and the videos that are online. Amy Weatherby site has marvelous videos. Um, the site for the birth to three, the zero to three group has wonderful videos about parent-infant play. Look at videos of parent-infant play. Look at Amy Weatherby's videos, the videos that we have up, Help Us In Your Hands. There's plenty you can read and plenty you can find out that will help you use your already interactive times with your toddler to deliver uh, more learning opportunities and to make sure that the learning opportunities that you are providing your baby kind of get in. How to get their attention so that they can make use of what you are doing for them. I would say um, turn to any parent, call people. Um, I, under I know that online work can be expensive. There are people who are certainly going to be willing to do a session with you, help you be on the right path. You certainly can find people who will help you, you know, take a look, you know, Dr. Ro I've had people, Dr. Rogers, can you just spend 30 minutes on a video with me and make, help me know if I'm on the right track? Many people will. So don't be afraid to ask. You know, there are tons of people's names and emails online. Feel free to call them, write them, ask them. We are here to help you. Our whole motivation is to help you help your child. I think we have, what, hundreds, I have hundreds of therapists just on my website that are all trained, that I'm sure they're all working online. All of us are working online. People are want, people want to help you parents. Exactly. Um, so it's been brilliant to talk to you and it's been like just a massive source of information. I could talk to you all night, <laughs> but I know all day in California, because it's nine o'clock over there. Do you have anything else you wanted to add um, anything else you wanted to talk about? Well, as you British parents know, the way that uh, the reason that we have all these services in the States is because of what parents have done. Parent advocacy has driven all of our early intervention systems. Parent advocacy has driven the research. Parents are powerful when they are a group of people who are um, you know, advocating for their children it, it doesn't come out of the goodness of the hearts of any government. It comes out of parents and the power that parents have with your elected officials and the amount of noise you can make. Parent, American parents are noisy. <laughs> <laughs> so I use all the advocacy skills you have and all you can acquire and band together. Yeah, and that's the important part, isn't it? I think it's trying to get as many people as possible to, to really band together and to support each other, but also to try and push out a little bit with you know this isn't okay we need to do something about our services over here um and I looked at American parent advocacy as part of my doctoral research and and wow <laughs> that's absolutely what changed everything isn't it um because it's not always been it like is. this in the U.S. It's, it's it's a work of complete you know wonder um with the the parent advocacy and the people that were involved at the very beginning and I think we can do the same here I think it's just trying to get people together on the same page and, and make sure people have got enough energy to do it because it's hard we know when we're working with parents um there's high levels of stress and anxiety especially when you have a child and you're waiting for services and you're getting anything um so it's you know making sure you have enough energy to advocate but you know we're we're always looking to try and push out some campaigns and emails to mps and 
just getting it rolling again, I think would be a good idea for us now. Things are back to some kind of normality, <laughs> kind of, <laughs> um, in terms of the pandemic, although it's still ongoing. Um, but, you know, we've all got time to write emails to our elected representatives, like you say, and just start to question what's going on. You know, all the research is showing that there's lots that can be done at an early age to support children with autism. And we need to get on the same path as everywhere else in the world like the US and Australia. I mean Australia is doing amazing things too, isn't it? They are doing they are doing a lot, yes, and it's government mm-hmm. funded. Yeah. I think we can get there. We just need to talk to the right people at the right time with the right number of uh, parents behind us. But thank you so much for talking to me, Sally. It's been lovely to see you again. It's nice to see you too, Ruth, and thanks for giving me the opportunity. This is always fun for me. I enjoy talking to people in real time and learning from what everybody about what's happening with them and trying to help along the way thank you so much to professor sally rogers for appearing on play to pod it was a real inspiration to be able to talk to you again and um, we look forward to hearing more from you in the coming years so um, thank you so much for all the work you've done in this field you've changed the world for so many children um, by developing some groundbreaking intervention um, looking at the naturalistic play-based interventions that we know work so well with the children that we see and we hope that parents um, listening to this episode can feel inspired to know that they are doing absolutely the right thing they know they're children best and with a bit of guidance and some coaching in how to kind of turn that volume up in the social side of things then you don't need to do 25 hours a week of intervention you can absolutely do lots and lots and lots all by yourself with a little bit of guidance from experts like ourselves and like Sally and her team so we hope you enjoyed that and we hope that it inspired you especially parents in the UK um, to to possibly look at a little bit of advocacy and try and campaign for some early intervention in in this field because it's really not happening in the way it should be if you look across the world and other places um, the services that are out there for children with autism and early signs of autism and the therapy services that parents have access to are just incredible in comparison to what we're getting here so please watch this space for some information in the next few months about a campaign that we want to be launching here in the UK and anyone that wants to get involved can find us at www.blueskyautism.com or www.playtotalk.co.uk and if you think we might be able to help you and your child please send me an email on ruth at blueskyautism.com gonna be okay the sun could go out we're gonna be okay